Hello and welcome to Nightlight. You can see that the title of this time together is dealing with the subject of silence and solitude. So I started to send you a blank CD and a newsletter with nothing printed on it. But I, I wasn't sure that that would communicate the message. So rather than be silent for the next hour, I'm going to try to talk about silence. You remember back in November uh, when I did that part from Screwtape where Screwtape goes berserk and ends up turning into a centipede. One of the things that got him wound up was his uh, his hatred of music and silence. Now last month we talked about music uh, in the sense of singing and the, the, using singing as a as a spiritual weapon why would screw tape hate both music and silence of course obviously he has lo lots of kinds of music he doesn't hate because uh, hell learned how to infiltrate manipulate and misuse music but as Screwtape says in another place, they can never invent anything. They can only pervert what God has already given. They can't uh, make anything. They can only misuse the good in the hope of producing bad with it. So the, the perversion of music <clears throat> is not uh, because hell has a, a version of music that is uh, in opposition to heaven's music. It's that hell has to take the good that God has given and find ways to use human brokenness and rebellion and sin to take what was good and twist it. And it's, it's the good that's been twisted that, that gives it its power. I mean, uh, uh, if a human was exposed to pure evil, even as as broken and fallen as we are, we we couldn't bear the the sight of pure evil. Even in our fallenness, we would we would run screaming. So the enemy has to always uh, take the good and infiltrate the evil in it and twist it. Music and silence are both hated by the devil because they both produce the same result. Uh, music can get down to the core of the inner being and contact emotions and issues and memories. All the parts of us that we may be afraid to look at um, in the hope of us beginning to deal with those things properly to interact with them in prayer, to to face them if they're bad and to embrace them if they're good. What the enemy wants us to do is always stay out of touch with the things we need to repent of and also out of touch with the glory and the blessing and the the, the joy of what we're headed for. He would much rather keep us in a middle-of-the-road, mundane, dull, dead drudgery um, and and t and teach us to think that that is normal. When God created us for intense joy and uh, intense living, intense in a, in a good sense, not not the kind of intensity that most people think of when they hear that word, 
silence does the same thing that music does. Uh, music, in its original intent, gets us to, to get in touch with those things. But they're kind of happenstantial. It depends on the flow of the music, and it depends on where you are and what you're thinking and what the circumstances are as to whether you pay attention to it or not. But silence, purposely entering into solitude and silence for the purpose of letting the Holy Spirit get you in touch with those things. Or I, I should say, for the purpose of getting in touch with God and then letting Him direct what things you get in touch with. I mean, you don't go into solitude and silence just to do some kind of navel-gazing study of your insights, because how are you going to know what you're looking at anyway? If you already knew, you wouldn't need to look at it. So you don't go in for the purpose of going in. You don't go into the place of solitude or silence for the purpose of digging around inside yourself. You go there to present yourself before the Holy Spirit, who then is the candle of the Lord, who guides the, the, the moving of the light. The pro proverb says, the spirit of man in union with the Holy Spirit, is the candle of the Lord, searching all the deep inward parts. And so in silence, you, you begin, you begin to put yourself in that place. Now, we're, we're really afraid of silence. Obviously, we are. I mean, I mean, some of you may even use this CD as a Notice how I've learned to say CD instead of tape. See how I'm, I'm progressing in the world of technological advancement. Anyway, speaking of the world of technological advancement, uh, the, 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 loss, the loss of the ability to be st silent and still and listen is uh, prob probably the most common reason why people if they get healed, don't keep their healing, or they never get well to begin with. They just listen. You know, I know people who have just become addicted to listening to, to audio messages on the subject of healing. I mean, they, that's all they do is they they read the menu and read the menu and read the menu, and they don't understand why they're suffering from malnutrition or starvation. You can't just read the menu. You've got to put it down sometime and go and begin to do it. Now, when I talk about sol, you can't talk about solitude without talking about silence, and you can't talk about silence without talking about solitude. And we need to spend a lot of time on both. But all I'm going to do today is introduce some concepts to your thinking. And uh, I want to uh, read a couple of quotes to you that might help you understand it. One of them here is from Thomas Merton's description of the of the Desert Fathers. Now, I, I, I got to help you understand who the Desert Fathers are. They're not a con contrary to typical Protestant ignorance. They were not a bunch of people who uh, went and hid away from the world and. Uh, studied their navel, and lived a selfish life of inactivity because they didn't understand the gospel. I mean, I've heard some of the most horrendously ignorant descriptions of who the Desert Fathers were. But let me just read to you uh, here Thomas Merton's description of them. Society was regarded by the Desert Fathers as a shipwreck from which each single individual person had to swim for his or her life. 
See, we tend to think of, this is me now, not Merton, but we tend to think of uh, cultures that preceded us as being somehow godly. You know, if they were older than us, they were probably more godly than us. But an accurate understanding of history sees the modern world in which we live today as being almost fully present in the, uh, or it was emerging and became fully present uh, in in the world that the Desert Fathers resisted. Burton goes on to say, these were people who believed that to let one's self just drift along passively, accepting the tenets and values of what they knew as society was purely and simply a disastrous thing to do. Uh, a lot of the wisdom that we draw from today concerning solitude and silence and the other disciplines, what's called the spiritual disciplines, comes from the writing of these men and women who, contrary to popular Christian thinking of, of today, did not go off away from their culture to hide from it. They were against the world for the sake of the world. They refused to drown with the culture that was drowning, swam to safety, learned to salvage other people, and then went back and began to do it. And so out of the uh, solitude and silence of these people's disciplines and, and hunger for God emerged some of the great evangelists of their generation. The power of what they had to say emerged out of the silence and quietness and humility born uh, in their uh, quest to unite with God and to shake off the dust of death that they saw uh, taking over their world. Now, one of the things they saw that was so dangerous and so destructive was the acceptance of Christianity as uh, the state religion and all the evils that uh, they saw permeating uh, Christianity as a result of becoming popular. Uh, we could spend hours on that subject. I think enough is said about it uh, by just uh, saying that. Society was regarded by the Desert Fathers as a shipwreck from which each single individual person had to swim for his or her life. Don't you feel that way sometimes? Don't you feel that way most of the time? I think if you don't feel that way, it's a sign of, of spiritual disease. I'm not saying that to be critical. I think if you are not miserable at times with the sights and sounds around you, unless you live in a beautiful, isolated place, if you have to go to the mall or go to the supermarket or go anywhere where, where cultural activity is, is permeating, you can't be restful there unless you have already learned some of the things that we're wanting to talk about today and that is you've learned how to carry the atmosphere of heaven inside of you even in in into the midst of that and of course that's what the desert fathers were seeking to do to 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 learn to live heavenly so they could enter the earth with redemptive power 
not to go off and be so heavenly minded they were no earthly good, but to become so heavenly minded that they would become of some earthly good. And so uh, solitude has to do with willfully making yourself be alone. That's what it is. Now, for some of you listening to me, you got four or five kids, or you've got, you know, you name it. You say, Clay, well, you're crazy. I mean, if you think that's going to be of any help to me, I can't be in solitude. I, I'm, yes, you can. You can just, just like people who have to work and speak for a living can enter into the the, the blessedness of silence. And I'm going to show you how to how to do it in just a minute here. Um. Of course, I'm an expert on, on the blessedness of silence, huh? No, I, I talk more than the average person. Mary enjoys telling people in our conferences that, you know, statistically, women speak 50% more than women, not at our house. I'm always trying to tell somebody something. So uh, part of that is my calling. Part of that is my personality. And uh, I've had to learn, and I'm still learning, how to separate what is just my natural personality from what is the calling of the Holy Spirit. Sadly, for years and years and years, they have intertwined, and people have gotten a, a good dose of Clay McLean while he was trying to give them a solid dose of the, the Word of God. Uh, and and uh, I don't I don't think that, that the Lord... Uh, is angry about that, but he's looking forward to the day when uh, it's a purer word flowing through me from him without my in, infernal in uh, opinions getting in the way. You know, Jesus said in John, read the whole book of John, you'll find where he said it. He who speaks his own words seeks his own glory. But he who speaks the words of God seeks the glory of God. And uh, I remember the first time I read that where it really penetrated. And I, I was stricken by how much what I have to say uh, comes out of me. And uh, there are times when I've looked at the, the stacks and stacks of messages that I've recorded over these years. And like Thomas Aquinas that I mentioned last month, I look at it and I think all that I have written is straw or all that I've spoken is straw. Now, at the same time, I've got to be very careful not to think that I can discern that. Only God knows what was valuable and what wasn't. That's why there'll be a separation of uh, what was what was wood, hay, and stubble and what was pure gold on the day of the uh, judgment of the works of Christians. You'll see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I think, if you want to study up on it. But uh, the fire of God will test every man's work to see what value it is, and some will be wood, hay, and stubble, and burn up, and some will be precious, precious as gold. But my point in our time together today is to help you any way I can to find the place that your heart is looking for uh, where you don't you, you escape restlessness you escape anxiety you escape fears 
And uh, along with that, you'll find that closely connected to anxieties and fears are uh, uh, anger and judgmentalism and skepticism and a tendency towards uh, uh, a judgmentalism toward others. All that's, all that's rooted together. It's all mixed in there together. And uh, solitude, the willful desire to, put, to be alone, uh, is the first step toward getting to the root of those things. Because you see, do, do you realize when you're just in the normal flow of everyday life, in order to be in that flow, you have to cooperate with the flow. I'm not saying you're cooperating with overt evil, of course. I'm just saying you're, you're just functioning. You're driving, you're getting gas, you're going to the grocery store, you're uh, checking the weather, you're watching the headlines. You're listening to other people's conversations. You see the stupidity on the magazine racks as you check out at the grocery store. And you're just in the flow of life. You're not consciously making a comment on the goodness or badness of it. You're just flowing in it. But in order to be able to flow in it, you have to participate in it. And in order to participate in it, you have to turn off a good deal of what is valuable and important to you at any given moment in the day. Um. You may have little moments of contacting the depth of the goodness and richness of, of your inner being in union with Christ, uh, but not for very long, and not long enough to help you then begin to go deeper. In order to do that, you have to willfully, periodically withdraw from that flow. Now here again, those of you who have children and you've got a job and you've got all, you start listing all the stuff that makes what I'm saying impossible. I want to tell you it's not impossible because I know people, working people, people with little children, people with uh, lots of the same uh, demands on them that you have who are learning to do this. And in fact, I've learned from them how to do it myself. Uh, because believe it or not, though I don't have the schedule that some of you have, uh, I, in some ways I have a crazier schedule because uh, mine doesn't have eight to five limits to it. And uh, I've got little children and I've got middle-aged, you know, older children, not middle-aged children. Uh, you know, I've got older children and, and uh, my house is buzzing. And so my head is buzzing. And so how do you how do you do that? Well, you you have to carve out some time somewhere in the flow of, of the daily activity. It may mean now this this may frustrate some of you, but it may mean getting up in the middle of the night. You set a clock and you you carve out an hour or two in the dead of night uh, where you go and put yourself before the Lord. Say, so, well, if I did that all, I'd end up just putting myself before the Lord and going back to sleep. Well, is that a bad thing? It's putting yourself before the Lord that it makes the difference. If you end up going back to sleep, uh, you know, I see little kids sleeping on their father's shoulders all the time. It looks to me like a wonderful place to be. But I want to challenge you to ex at least examine the possibility that the rest you would obtain in the quiet time in the presence of the Lord, awake, could produce in you a greater result of physical and emotional rest than if you had slept uninterrupted all night. And I see that in the life of the Lord Jesus. I mean, he's, he's the pattern. He's the example. 
Sometimes he would spend the whole night with his father and then go out and minister all day. So that's because he's Jesus. No, it's not because he's Jesus, the Son of God. It's because he is he is living as a, as a man filled with the Holy Spirit in fellowship with his father. Jesus did not do what he did because he was God. He laid aside his prerogatives as God, according to Philippians 2, and took upon himself the full limitations of a man and lived his life as a man anointed by the Holy Spirit. Didn't do one miracle until the Holy Spirit came upon him. And then he spends numbers of places in Scripture telling us, the works that I do are not mine, but they are my Father's works. I, I do what I hear my Father say. I, I, I move when I hear my Father direct me to move. All that I do is by the power of the Holy Spirit in me in response to the Father. Why did he do it that way? Well, among other reasons, so you and I could learn to live that way. So when Jesus goes off and spends uh, hours and hours in solitude away from people, he is not just uh, uh, getting away from the rat race. He is uniting with his father, and he's teaching me how to do the same thing. He's saying, Clay, watch this. What, this is the way I live. Now, I can't go off for hours and hours, maybe. you I know many of you cannot go off for hours and hours. But can you go off for an hour? Can you separate from the rat race? You know, speaking of the rat race, did you know that researchers have discovered that if you take a a, a bunch of mice, rats, mice, and uh, put them on amphetamines, and then take a, a rat that has not had any amphetamine and put him among the rats, he'll be dead in ten minutes. As they're dying, he he and he didn't have the he didn't have the amphetamines in him. Do you realize if you are in this rat race, you may love God, you may die and go to heaven. <laughs> Not rat heaven, you go to real heaven. But you'll still be dead. I, someone very dear to me, uh, he is a doctor, he is a an expert uh, uh, athlete, he's an expert nutritionalist, and uh, he just had uh, a very near miss with a widowmaker heart attack. How could that be? Um, because he's under tremendous stress because of the changes taking place in the medical world and because of many other uh, stresses on him. I have another friend who is under the care of another doctor in another part of the country. He also is a, an expert uh, athlete, a nutritionalist, and, and medical doctor. Heart specialist, by the way. But uh, when my friend went for his checkup, he found that his doctor wasn't present because he had just had a uh, near-miss heart attack. The same similar symptoms as my friend here. Now, I'm not saying for one minute that there's not value in exercise and, and proper nutrition. But the facts are, the rat race can kill you. You may be uh, in, in good shape in every way, but if your heart is broken, you know, there is now a, syn a syndrome in medical uh, terminology that referred to as, as the broken heart syndrome, where research has proven that uh, uh, people can have a broken heart 
literally a broken heart and have symptoms of a heart attack while there are no physiological reasons for the heart attack. All the reasons for the heart attack symptoms are emotional. So failure to live in the peace of God, the shalom of God, the wholeness of God's presence, while knowing that that exists and believing in it and affirming it and embracing it on the conscious mental level, but never entering into it in reality can kill you. Well, the opposite then is true, that uh, entering into the peace of God and living in the in union with him can, can heal you and sustain you. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So you begin to be able to... Uh, access the things in you that are hidden, that are unhealed, and that are popping up out of you in forms that are disappointing to you and hurtful to other people. And this is where, in solitude, silence becomes a necessity. Now, I wish I could talk more just about solitude, but I want to introduce all of this into your thinking while I have your attention. Uh, many people have never experienced silence and don't even know that they don't know what silence is. Because noise is comforting to us. Uh, when I was about three years old, I disappeared. Uh, I knew where I was, but nobody else knew. And uh, they were all frantically looking for me all over the place. And they found me snuggled up between the wall and the uh, refrigerator that we had a, an old uh, freezer you know the, you know with the, the lid that opens at the top and the motor of that freezer was down in the corner of the bottom uh, uh, of that thing and it it had a it had a motor that whirred and it blew out warm air and I crawled up in there next to that motor and curled up and I remember how angry I felt when they came and pulled me out of that little hole and they chewed me out and told me how evil uh, it was for me to scare them all so bad. And I couldn't figure out what in the world they were talking about. I, I wasn't bothering anybody. I was minding my own business. But I'd found a quiet, warm, dark place with a motor running. And the sound of that motor gave me a sense of being, which I desperately lacked. And so uh, I, I remember the frustration I felt, and that frustration ended up beginning to form in me very early uh, an anger at anything that interfered with my sense of solitude. It would be years and years of finally coming into true solitude with the Holy Spirit that I began to get in touch with those, those root issues that helped feed an anger in me that was ungodly. And that's another story. But the point is, the the noise of that engine, uh, not engine, but that motor in the in the freezer, was the comfort that I was looking for. I think people keep noise going on all the time for that same reason. Uh, even Christian music can be uh, a noise. You know, Screw Tape didn't like. Uh, silence and he didn't like music but he loved noise noise the grand dynamism that keeps the whole world ignorant of the voice of God and uh, totally enraptured with its own activity noise gives us a false sense of comfort because noise 
suggests that there's life happening. Busy, busy, busy. You go into any restaurant today, you can't have a conversation because they've not just got uh, the jukebox going. Uh, they've got uh, 10 screens flashing at you, and then they've got some music. I mean, you can't possibly hear any of it. Okay, I'm calm now. You can't hear yourself think. You can't have a conversation because everybody around you is so devoid of a sense of being that they've got to glut themselves with noise, noise, noise. And uh, they think that's life. And they, they need that to fill the void where they are so devoid of life. There is no life. It's death. See, we're terrified of silence because silence reminds us of death. And at death, we are naked with no one to relate to but God. And I guess that, that's why we're so afraid of silence, because uh, solitude and silence, because that, that's the closest we can get to being dead to the world and alive to God. And yet, if you're really afraid of solitude and silence, because you really are unconsciously afraid that death for you is the end of living and there's not much for you to look forward to on the other side, even though you've got all the right doctrine about death and heaven in your head, then it's very telling, isn't it, that uh, being afraid to be alone and afraid to be quiet produces in you an anxiety uh, that suggests your relationship to God is sorely lacking. I'm not saying, for heaven's sakes, you're not saved. I mean, that that's not the issue at all here. I mean, maybe, but I doubt, I doubt that anybody listening to this message would be in that category. But your your mind is not saved yet. Your 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 heart, your soul is saved. You're going to heaven, but but you you know you you live here. You know, going to heaven and having a good theology about going off to heaven doesn't mean a whole lot about how effective your life is here for good, for yourself or for others or for God. So uh, when you are alone with yourself and you have no one to relate to in that unfortunate place, <laughs> you, then you turn to God and you begin to interact about the things that you've been ignoring now, talking is another thing that, that uh, we use to fill the void inside and to uh, try to avoid our pain. I guess one of, one of my least favorite verses in the Bible, since I talk so much, is uh, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19, which says in the King James Version, In the multitude of words there lacketh not sin. But he that refrains his lips is wise. I think the, the New Living Bible says, don't talk too much. It's bound to lead to trouble and sin. Uh, turn off the flow. <laughs> Talking is a, is a means of uh, filling our emptiness with the wrong things. And as a result of that, it, it leads to uh, sin. And, uh, you know, I, I realized for years one of the things that motivated a lot of my uh, anger in the pulpit 
was I felt very inconvenienced by the sin of the world because it, it caused me a lot of trouble. And I was pretty mad at the world for, for not being godly because I knew godliness would make a, a peaceableness and then I could have more peace. <laughs> I know that sounds silly, but it, it really is true. Uh, a lot of what I thought was prophetic zeal for righteousness was really just an anger at the world for not behaving itself, so I didn't have any problem with it. You know, Matthew 12, verse 19 says that Jesus uh, does not strive, does not lift up his voice. Uh, no man will hear his voice above the street noise, one translation says. Uh, the, the, the Lord is not interested in raising his voice to accommodate the, the, the decibels of uh, foolishness and noisiness around us. Isaiah 30 verse 15 says that in quietness and confidence and trust shall be our strength. And then James has a lot to say about the tongue, doesn't he? I mean, he's got more to say about it than we want to hear. Uh, he says that the tongue is a dangerous weapon, can be set aflame by the fires of hell. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, uh, you know, if, if you call your brother a fool, you're in danger of hellfire. What you do with your mouth can endanger your soul. The Lord Jesus says so. So uh, he says that people who don't bridle their tongues, James says people who don't bridle their tongues are self-deceived and have a religion that is void of reality. He says, you, you know, you, you say all the right things, but uh, your, your mouth betrays you. He says that those who do not harm others with their mouth are perfect and are able to control all the other appetites of their body correctly. It, James 3 verse 2 says that. Silence is the beginning of speaking rightly. See, the, the right word emerges out of silence. What gives birth to the word that's worth hearing is the silence in which it was nurtured. We see this in the incarnation. We sing about it, or we used to sing about it every Christmas before Christmas became a cacophony of stupidity uh, that makes no room for silence. But we used to sing, let all mortal flesh keep silent and in awe and worship stand before this incarnation. Silent night, holy night. O little town of Bethlehem, there's a line that says, uh, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessing of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming. But in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, uh, the dear Christ enters in. In silence, the union takes place between us and the incarnation. So uh, when, when you've learned to be alone and quiet, in that quietness, God begins to form in you the, the good and the true that he wants to flow through you. Uh, before he does that, he, he removes the other stuff that's in the way of it. Uh, 
But when you're quiet, uh, James says, for instance, in uh, in chapter 1, verse 19, James says, Be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, it's interesting to me that on, uh, we've already cited it in James, and then I mentioned what Jesus said in Matthew about calling your brother a fool. And Proverbs has, there's so many Proverbs about this, I won't cite them all. You just need to read the whole book of Proverbs and make a note by every verse that refers to the overabundance of words and foolishness and anger and folly. How foolish speaking leads to foolish action. And how abundance of speaking, speaking to hear yourself speak, and you know this is so easy to do. Men men do this very easily. Uh, we 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 make snide remarks about the chatter of women at the, uh, you know, at the the office or or how you know women talk. Men are very capable of of shooting off their our mouths. See, I, I tried to make it sound like it's all you, not me. Men are capable of shooting off our mouths. Uh, off the top of our head or shooting off the cuff, especially in reference to politics or issues that we really have no direct control over. And because we have no direct control over it, we want to shoot at it from the hip or from the armchair or wherever. Uh, and, and what's so infuriating about that in, when you realize what, what you're doing is it, uh, you know, Je- uh, Je- Jeremiah chapter 1, God says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewn out for themselves broken cisterns that cannot hold water. He said, It's bad enough that you try to make a cistern that can't even hold water to, to sustain yourself with, but then you refuse me, the fountain of living waters. That's double sin. And when we just shoot our mouth off at what we don't like politically, and boy, am I talking to Clay McLean. I mean, for heaven's sakes, you're just getting to listen in on me rebuking me. If it affects you, fine. I'm glad you're able to be helped by it. But to just shoot your mouth off, Clay, uh, without... Realizing, first of all, by shooting your mouth off, you're wasting words. Jesus said in Matthew 12 also, you will give account to God for every idle, ineffective, meaningless word you speak. I remember, uh, anyway, I don't want to digress. I'm going to have to give account for every time I misuse the the God-given power of articulate speech, which is God-like what separates us from the animals and makes us in the image of God is our ability to speak words. So, uh, not only am I sinning by shooting my mouth off at things that I feel I'm impotent to change, but I'm also sinning by refusing to use the one weapon I have been given by God that can implement change, and that is prayer. Quite often, we don't know how to pray because we wasted our 
language abilities in every other venue but prayer. By the time you get before the Lord, you've run out of words. You've wasted your words, uh, wasted your speech energy, wasted your capacity for focus and understanding and discernment in interacting with the world, the flesh, and the devil in whatever form it's taken in your world. And it's left you impotent in prayer. People who practice solitude and silence find that they have a tremendous vocabulary for prayer. Uh, they find uh, people who begin to practice silence on a regular basis find that they are able to uh, uh, control and uh, bridle their emotions so that when they come into prayer, they are able to release those emotions and the words that go with those emotions and the emotions that ride in those words, and they are able to fluently express themselves before God, and the Holy Spirit is there to help them do it because he's, he's for that kind of speech. He, he's, he's, he's behind that. He's into that. But he's not into idle chatter or, or bitter uh, skeptical, uh, cynical language or cursing or uh, things of that nature that have become just such a part of our normal vernacular that we are absolutely incapable without the Holy Spirit's help of grasping how sinful it is. This is the shipwreck that uh, the church fathers saw and swam away from for their very lives in order to find solid ground on which to stand and then from that solid ground uh, became impregnated with the living word so they could carry it back to the dying world in, uh, in love to give to that world what, what it was completely devoid of. The, the utter stupidity and I'm not using that word derogatorily. It is, it's, it's the only, you give me a better descriptive word, I'll be glad to use it. But stupidity comes from the idea of being in a stupor, uh, of being completely uh, out of touch with reality and living in a counterfeit reality that is devoid of wisdom, truth, or goodness. That's what stupidity is. So the, the utter ineptness and stupidity and foolishness of the average daily news broadcast or television uh, tele program or, or a commercial, uh, it's, it's, it's un unbelievable to me how we can sit, for instance, this is just one, one, one example. Some horrible story is told in the name of news broadcast. Some horrendous evil. I'm not going to use an example because I don't want to put it in your head. Some tragic cruelty on a national scale or, or even to an individual. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's national or individual, but just something horrendous. And that's spouted out. And then within two seconds, we've gone to a car commercial or a toothpaste commercial or some other silly uh, ad we have a mindset in this culture that believes it's perfectly normal to hear about the devastation of an earthquake that's just killed 
30,000 people. And then immediately upon hearing that news, we, we go over here to the, uh, the, the selling of a, a Mazda station wagon or whatever. I don't know if Mazda makes station wagons. I would doubt it. But anyway, the point is, what does it do to the soul of a person who can make that transition? If you're successful at making that transition, there is something wrong with you, and it has happened to you little by little by little by soaking in this culture. It is desperately vital that you learn to withdraw from that milieu and begin to listen for the healing word. Begin to listen to the voice of God. Begin to listen for the the, the other point of view. I want to read to you here a, a statement that Dr. Dallas Willard quoted from one of his associates who began to practice solitude and silence. This is what he says. This is a young family man with all the responsibilities of eight to five and all the pull on him that any of us have in just living in a family and in a culture and going to a, a job every day. He says, quote, the more I practice the discipline of solitude and silence, the more I appreciate the strength that comes to me from it. I'm becoming less skeptical and judgmental. The more I learn to accept the things I didn't like about others, and the more I accept them as unique creatures in the image of God, then the less judgmental I'm becoming. The less I talk, the fuller are words spoken at the appropriate time. The more I value others, the more I serve them in small ways the more I enjoy and celebrate life. The more I celebrate, the more I realize that God has given me wonderful things in my life, the less I worry about my future. I will accept and enjoy what God is continuously giving to me. I think I am beginning to really enjoy God. Now, of all the things in that quote, that I hope you take hold of. I really want you to take hold of that last one. All of it's important, but what? look what it ultimately leads to. I'm beginning to really enjoy God. You see, when, when you're in the milieu of the, the world, the flesh and the devil, the world is dying. The world is passing away in it and the lust thereof. The world has received a death sentence. That happened at Calvary. The prince of this world and the world system he produced and is ruling over received its uh, its death knell at the cross. With the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the new world set foot on the earth and was set in motion and has been moving ever since towards the uh, annihilation of the fallen world and the, re the replacement of it with the coming kingdom. So that ever since the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, we have been living in the end of the age. Now, uh, if I align myself with the world that has already received its death sentence, even though I'm a believer, I belong to Jesus at death, I'll, I belong to Jesus. But if I align myself with the world that is passing away, of course I'm going to feel like I'm passing away.
if most of my interaction is with a system that God has already decreed uh, uh, condemned, then I'm going to feel condemnation even though I'm not condemned. I'm not condemned with the world. But Paul says, you know, judge yourselves so that you will not be judged with the world. And how can I judge myself if I'm flowing in the milieu of the world? I've got to pull out of that mess. I've got to dry off and clean it off of me and then put myself purposely in the presence of the one who is my true inheritance and my true home. And I, see, I do this... I do this in communion. I do this every time I receive the body and blood of the Lord. Though sadly, most of the church, unless they are are properly educated in the the meaning of the sacraments, they don't know what they're doing. They just you know get the little cracker and grape juice and go through the motions and you know. But you know you, you can have people in in that, in uh, uh, sacramental churches that don't know what they're doing too. So, but still. Whether you do the grape juice or the uh, wine or whatever you do, if you consciously understand, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. He didn't mean feel morbid and sad because of all I went through at the cross. He meant remember, do this till I come again. Remember, this is to keep me in remembrance before you that I am coming again. This is to be a little just a little uh, appetizer of the marriage supper of the lamb. That's what he's saying. So as you receive the body and blood, you're dead to the world. You're alive to God. And in that little moment, you're able to enter into and take hold of the powers of the world to come and all the goodness of it in that moment. Keeping of the Sabbath is another example for those of you who have uh, struggled like Mary and I have to find a way to keep one period a week, one day, it should be one day fully. And to me, it's easiest to do it on Friday night sundown. I mean, the whole world is out partying and making racket beginning about sundown on Friday. Isn't it ironic that the world makes Friday night the biggest, wildest party night of the week when in the Hebrew calendar it's sundown Friday that is the beginning of Shabbat. So for, for Mary and I, it's really become easier to, to, to begin Friday night uh, with a meal and, and with a prayer and to sanctify uh, that time. We don't do it very well. I'm telling you, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't, I, don't want you, I don't want you to get the idea that if you came to visit us every Friday night, you'd see Shabbat displayed properly. We do it poorly, but we, we work at it. We labor to enter into that rest, so to speak. And and for us, it's become it's become a time of uh, refuge and restoration. But those are those are places that we already have in place in the life of the church that most people do honor, or at least to some degree. But I think it's going to take even more than that. If you're doing that, then you're ahead of the game. But it's still going to take more than that to achieve what I'm describing here. Uh, somewhere, sometime. You've got to find a place of withdrawing and silence. Now, in, in the closing minutes we've got, let me just suggest to you, one of the things the church fathers used to say that is so true, they said a man can be silent and yet his mind be screaming with bitterness, unforgiveness, envy, and lust. Just cessation of speech doesn't constitute silence.
Just getting away from people doesn't constitute solitude. Um, A person can be in the midst of busyness and have solitude in his heart with the Lord. A person can have to talk for a living, uh, like a school teacher or a lecturer or, or a news broadcaster or whatever. And yet inside, he's kept his heart silent before the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. and all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. How can you trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding? Obviously, in the, the scriptural view, which is the only view that matters, it's possible for your heart and your understanding to be functioning on different levels. Well, the same principle is true in this. I may have to be talking like I'm having to do right now. See, I would much rather be quiet. I I, I would much rather, I mean, I love you all, and I love communicating with you. But when I got back in touch with these truths here a few weeks ago, because of some demands on me that were so heavy that I had no choice but to just withdraw not withdraw from people, but withdraw to the Lord. Now, see the difference? There's, I didn't withdraw from people. I withdrew to the Lord. And uh, the more I've done it, the more I've wanted to do it. You know, uh, when my house is busy, there's a hall bathroom uh, that <laughs> that's where I go. I mean, our house is not very big. And when all the kids are here, uh, it's really not very big. And when I need to be quiet, I I go to that hall bathroom and I close the door. It's the only room in the house that has no windows. I I put a towel down under the the door so the sunlight can't creep in. I like it dark because it helps me focus. I guess maybe I'm still in some ways trying to find that uh, little cubby hole next to the freezer that I snuck uh, into when I was three. But I go in there and I get quiet and and I, I just wait. I just wait. It's it's not very religious, you know, it's a it's a bathroom. Uh you know, it's a water closet. <laughs> but I love it. I go in there and I just I just sit on the floor and just be still and I just to, to go in there and just say, you know, I didn't come in here to hide from people. But I just wanted to be with you. I just needed to be with you. I need your point of view. I need your input and your presence and your wisdom and most of all, your per, just your presence. And that's when I begin to sing. You know, that's when I begin to, that's when I begin to draw on the, my hymn book, my H.I.M. book that I mentioned last month. And, uh, just begin to bathe myself in his presence. But sometimes, even in the singing, I'll hear the Holy Spirit say, be quiet, be quiet. Even my singing can become an interference with what he's trying to do in me at that moment. And see, that's that's not, this is not law. This is not legalism. I mean, if I keep singing, he's not going to sit there and say, well, he, idiot he's not listening you know he'll he'll receive my song but he wants me to become more sensitive to his orchestration his direction 
he's the conductor and I'm I'm I need to learn to be sensitive to what he's saying and by doing that I become more sensitive to his voice when I go outside the the door and I go back into the the ups and downs and and craziness of of the world and I I'm I'm much more sensitive to hear the holy spirit say to me in uh maybe a room full of people where the conversation is on a subject that I'm particularly uh, stirred up by and something in me wants to rise up and speak for God and the Holy Spirit says, no, 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 be quiet. You're not speaking for me. You're just mad. <laughs> you're not You're not being stirred by the prophetic anointing. You're just teed off because you don't like what this, what they're saying. And it may be that what they're saying, it really is bad, but it's not necessarily my responsibility or a calling to address it in that moment or ever at all. Maybe it's not my business at all. So are you beginning to to catch how this works? I'm, I'm not, gosh, I'm not for one minute saying I've got it all figured out, but this is how I've survived, uh, the 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 battle I, I've got a letter in here that I keep I, I read it periodically it's from a young man that I've I've known and loved for 40 years and uh, his father was a very integral part of my early discipling and uh, James has had his ups and downs in his own walk with the Lord and he's He's now a middle-aged man. He's not a kid anymore, but he wrote me a letter years ago, and it, it says uh, how grateful he is to me that of all the people he knew from his early Christian life, uh, I'm one of a few that is still walking with Jesus and has not gone off the deep end or, or gone back into sin or you know, been through a dozen marriages and divorces and so forth. And I'm, I'm moved by that. I'm, I'm honored and I'm humbled by it. But I wrote him back and, and told him, you know, it's not that I've done everything well and it's not that I've been a sterling example of of uh, stability. Uh, in fact, early, early on, when I was about 18 years old, a great Scottish pastor was visiting our church and he looked at me and he said, give God your inconsistencies and there'll be a great day ahead of you. And uh, that was one of the greatest prophetic words I ever received. I'd received a lot of prophetic words that talked about all the wonderful things that were going to happen through me. The only one I remember and can call up and quote is that one. Give me your inconsistencies and a great day will be ahead of you. And that's what I've done. I mean, I'm I'm the most inconsistent person uh, in the world. (laughs) I think. I mean, how am I going to know that? But anyway, uh, I know what I believe and I know uh, whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. And all my joy is in him and all my trust is in him. But I have moments when you look at me and say, do you do you know the Lord? What's wrong with you? And Mary always warns me not to say stuff like this because people get all kind of funny ideas. You know, like when I talk about my anger, 
and and I said, well, you know, I'm, uh, I've got a terrible temper. She says, you, you need to quit saying that because people who really, truly do have terrible tempers in which they use filthy, foul language and throw things and break things and should be arrested or put in a straitjacket will think that you're saying that you're like they are. And they'll draw some kind of perverse affirmation from it. So you shouldn't say that. So I understand what Mary's saying, but what I'm trying to say to you is my 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 inconsistencies are glaring to me. And the closer I get to the Lord, the more glaring they are. But the closer I get to the Lord, the more glaring they are in that the Holy Spirit begins to get through to me faster and more pointedly now. It's not that I don't have the inconsistencies, it's that I'm much more sensitive to his correction. And here's the best part. I'm actually now, after 50 plus years, I'm getting to the place where his correction precedes my screwing it up instead of correcting me after I screwed it up. Is that not wonderful? You think that's not progress? (laughs) Anyway, I want to pray. I want to pray for you uh, in these closing moments that we've got, that the Lord Jesus will help you. Father, help every person listening to my voice. Come into the solitude in which silence births the truth of the of your word in them. Help them find practical ways to do it, even if it's in the water closet in the hall. Help them withdraw from the world for the world's sake. In Jesus' name.